I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. And this is Show Your Work, our weekly podcast we about- We are back. Work. We're working. Um, okay, before we get into our lineup, yes. I just want to have a really- quick conversation with you because everybody is talking about this. I want to know what you think of um, Anderson Cooper's eye roll on Kellyanne Conway. And from a work perspective, professional, unprofessional, uh, should he have? She's saying he was sexist. Like, this is not what I want to talk about because it was not sexist. But this is a proper news anchor. Um, should you be rolling your eyes at somebody you're interviewing? Okay, but the the bets are all off. The rules are off. Like, the news anchors have a reasonable expectation that people who are on air are not trying to actively shame them or, you know, trick them into tying themselves in knots and then being like, but what about the babies, Anderson? I don't know if that was actually <laughs> said. I did not see the interview. I, I don't know. Like... Anderson Cooper is only a human. At a certain point, how can you react any other way to Kellyanne Conway? Yeah, but it wasn't their first interview. Like, it's not like they haven't been having this back and forth. It's actually become a regular feature on Anderson Cooper 360. Here's Kellyanne Conway. Here's Kellyanne Conway talking shit. And here's Anderson trying to get her to say the truth. And this time he rolled his eyes. Yeah, but to me, it's like a stress test. Like, how many exposures to Kellyanne Conway can you have before you roll your eyes? <laughs> like, how long would you last? How long would I last? Yeah. You know, how long would Donald Trump actually last if we had yeah. a camera on him full time? And this is the answer. It takes uh, 100 days of reporting plus inauguration for Anderson Cooper to roll his eyes. Uh, what I thought, though, you were going to talk about is how excited were the Washington Post and other outlets to print a retraction yesterday? It was the best retraction, uh, or to print the retraction that was heard around the world. Uh, did you hear about this? I did. And that uh, when Sean Spicer was accused of hiding in the bushes, and yes. they wrote their whole article about how he was hiding in the bushes, <laughs> then after a million Homer Simpson gifts that have never been more appropriate, then they got to write a retraction that was like, oh, our apologies. Sean Spicer and the White House would like you to know that he was not hiding in the bushes. He was near and among the bushes with his staff. <laughs> <laughs> like if you've ever had to print a retraction, that is your happiest retraction day. Well, and also it is that much more funny and ludicrous given that the White House um, has had 18 versions of the same story. Um you know, last week. You're listening to this on Monday. Um, but yeah, so juxtaposed against the ridiculousness of what they were reporting on, um, the fact that they had to correct a minor locational description but it's, in or beside is 
fucking hysterical. Well, and designed to distract and all of that. But like the point remains the same. Among the bushes or hiding in the bushes still means dude was standing in foliage as opposed to, say, standing in front of the microphones like he was That's supposed right. to. And properly lit and, you know. In- Turn off the lights. <laughs> exactly. I will say, though, just to go quickly back to Anderson Cooper, the reason why I found this so funny is we have a friend, Lorella. Hi, Lorella. Um, who regularly gives us material because she's so smart and hilarious. And it was Lorella who many years ago called Anderson Cooper the Julia Roberts of reporters. <laughs> and, of course, if you need… Of Sorry, course, I just want to pause and say that everybody <laughs> in that scenario would think that was a compliment. That's uh, right. Lorella would think that she was giving a compliment. Both Anderson Cooper <laughs> and Julia Roberts should see that as the flattery that it is. That's right. Although it is some shade. Um, listen, we love we love Julia Roberts. And of course, there are many things we celebrate about Julia Roberts. But one of those things is the fact that she's so entertaining because she is unabashedly, unapologetically the focus of attention everywhere she goes. Um, and when she's not, she makes herself. And so to call someone the… Who's Natalie? Exactly. To call someone… Who's Natalie? <laughs> to call someone the Julia Roberts of reporters is to say that Anderson Cooper makes himself the story all the time. Um, you, If that happens to you once, fine. Lorella's point is that it happens consistently and repetitively. He yep. goes to Haiti, he gets punched in the face, he's the story. There's a hurricane, something happens to him, he's the story. Okay, but Kellyanne I'm, Conway, he's the story. I would argue that that is a feature. It's not a bug. Like, Anderson <laughs> Cooper has been the story since he first said those silky words, who is the mole? On still <laughs> my favorite reality show of all time. The mole. God, the mole was so smart. And so since that very day, Anderson Cooper has been the focus. You know nothing about who was on the mole or who won the mole, except that Anderson Cooper hosted it deliciously and that there were so many scenes of like extraneously drinking wine in Europe. Yeah. Ergo, he's always been the focus. I dare you to name three other people who work at CNN. You don't know any. Of course I do. Okay. Fine, if it were not your professional business to know. But Anderson Cooper is and always has been a story into himself. And I'm very into that. It's the Oprah thing. That is true. However, if you said that to him, I don't think he would like it and he could not admit to it. What he would have to say is, no, I am not the story. My job is to report the story. Sorry, sorry. No, this is the same man who like published a book that was like stories and love my mother and I have exchanged <laughs> over rainbows. Like it's not. The mother being Gloria Vanderbilt. Right. And look, if you're like me and that doesn't mean as much as it should, I know who Gloria Vanderbilt is, but you know, it doesn't strike me with. I know, but my point, if I may make it, mm-hmm. is that he is actively playing into Anderson Cooper being Julia Roberts. And I think he's not mad at it. Then admit it. I think he does. I don't think he does. I think that Anderson Cooper sits in his chair. And again, let me be clear here. I love Anderson Cooper. But Anderson Cooper sits in his chair and considers himself on par with or at least aspires to be the kind of ilk of journalist as uh, Walter Cronkite, Tom Brokaw, and 
it, that is what he would say. 100%. I, I disagree and I'll tell you why. I'm shaking my head like a five-year-old over here. <laughs> um, I don't think so. And the reason is, and you can Google this term, the Anderson Cooper giggle. Anderson Cooper has giggled, <laughs> has giggled. on air yes. since he had a talk show, mm-hmm. since before that, since the mole. Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, if you want to, you can spend the money to train it out of you and to become more Tom Brokaw or whatever. Anderson Cooper giggles. And I think it makes him unique. And I'm not saying he cultivates it, but I think he is comfortable living in it. And I think he's comfortable in the ways that that separates him from the Brokaws and Dan Rathers and so forth. And and power to him. I, you know, I agree with you about the giggle. Uh, here's me bragging. I've made Anderson Cooper giggle. Um, I will tell you how. Beyonce. Um, at the end of my interview with him, I said to him, um, I just have one more question for you. And I said it in that tone. Anderson, I just have like one more question for you how much do you love Beyonce? And he laughed. However, in that same interview, we talked about how he gave me his journalistic philosophy. Um, He has once before said that he is nonpartisan. He doesn't believe in journalists sharing their voting records. He doesn't believe in saying that this candidate is better than the next. And he cited a certain journalistic standard that he aspires to. So while I agree with everything that you're saying about who Anderson presents he is, out of his mouth, he also wants to have it both ways. Yeah, but there, therein lies your point because he giggled about Beyonce and had you dared to ask Dan Rather about Beyonce, he would point you out the door. Oh my God. This now reminds me of an article that I delightedly shared with you and Lorella a few months back where uh, Ireland was poised uh, on the brink of an election, and they asked (laughs) all the politicians, most of whom were in their 60s and 70s, whether they were Beyonce fans, and the answers were amazing and typically Irish, and I will find that link and post it for you because it will make you giggle. I posted it, actually. All day. The journalist actually got a pretty good return on her question. I think something like, I don't know, 70% of the polled uh, politicians she asked responded to her. She only got silence from, you know, 30% of them. And all of them had an opinion. Some of them even quoted Beyonce lyrics. Oh, yeah. And the best was <laughs> when they would try to make it about the political issues. That's right. <laughs> uh, I think such and such a party should go to the left, to the left. That's which... right. Or, oh, I love Beyonce because girls run the world. Uh, feminism hashtag or hashtag feminism, as John Oliver would say. All this to say, never change, Anderson Cooper. Roll your eyes. Uh, I'm here for that. I, I think that, you know, we could have a whole hour about how CNN is also entertainment. Uh, so Also is. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. Like, I mean, Zucker has openly stated, that would be Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN, um, has openly stated that uh, CNN, he wants CNN to be a spectator sport. In which case, Anderson That's Cooper. A quote. In which case, Anderson Cooper is doing his job by <laughs> being the, if not the voice of the people, then the split screen of the people. <laughs> um, all right, shall we get into our lineup? I mean, yeah, we're here. Yeah. Now, as promised, uh, I've written about this a couple of times, and thank you for sharing your enthusiasm for it. We've had a few emails from people saying, "Can't wait," uh, because you need to talk about Miley. We are talking about Miley. We've had some emails that are paragraphs upon 
paragraphs, and we have read them. So uh, Miley, uh, two weeks ago now, did an interview with Billboard, and it was ahead of the release of her new single. The new Mm -hmm. single came out a few days ago, last Thursday. It is called Malibu, with an accompanying video. Uh, So as she said in her Billboard interview, this represents a new sound for her. She's going back, she says, to a sound that she knows. Um, and she has a message behind her sound. She wants to unite people. Um, so it is a new era of Miley. And so one of the things that was, you know, particular for you and I is that we discussed, uh, talking about that billboard interview because there's lots in it earlier. Uh, but because they pinned it around the sound in a way that they don't always with, uh, with, you know, new album profiles, I wanted to wait and hear it. I wanted for both of us to wait and hear it. And now we have. And here we are. So I'll just say it. I think the song's boring. Yes. Not only is it boring, it is, but it's just boring in a really specific way. I had this crushing realization as I listened to the song. And that was that I too think it's boring. I too think it's bland. And I think it's the kind of song that you will find yourself tunelessly singing along to in the car sooner or later. When it winds up on the adult contemporary station uh, that you are ashamed to admit you listen to because sometimes you can't take the latest club beat that is being played hour after hour after hour, and you switch to the AC station and promise not to tell anybody, and then you have the presets on in the car, and Miley's song Malibu comes on, you will sort of tunelessly sing along without ever knowing any of the words really or processing it. And I think that's damning with the faintest of faint praise that I can. Yeah. I, to me, I, I don't know, like in terms of when you come out strong like that and you do this interview, which they kept repeating was her first interview in a long time, right? So you do this interview, the first interview in a long time, you come out to Billboard and you're like this and that. I'm ready, it's new, uh, get ready for it. And you build all this anticipation and then uh, the song is so excruciatingly nothing. If you haven't heard it yet, it's excruciatingly nothing in a Sheryl Crow kind of way. Uh, Specifically, maybe earlier Sheryl Crow before she had her two sort of theme songy hits that people like to put in films. The songs it reminds me of are things like Sheryl Crow's Strong Enough. Like, it just sort of lulls along being a song that's got a guitar and it's about America, which is a point we're going to come back to, of course. Uh-huh. It's it's not only boring. It's just it's been done before. Now, is she a victim of the fact that the Miley we've known since the reinvention, since the shedding of Hannah Montana was the exact opposite. It was provocative. It was controversial. Some people would find it offensive. I mean, I'm just, you know, this is what we do here. We explore it from these angles. So when you are um, known for the last three years for your tongue and your body language and, uh, you know, smoking weed, that was a lot of it, then strategically, is there value to taking the edge all the edges away. There's not one remaining edge in this song. This this song is all kind of like 
I mean, this song has no sharpness. Okay, but look, here's the thing. There are two things here. First of all, Party Miley. If we can parse our Miley's from Hannah Montana Miley to uh, Party in the USA Miley to Robin Thicke Miley to today's Miley, uh, here's the, the common denominator that used to exist with the other three is the songs were good. Party in the USA. Great is, song. You can sing along to that song. Uh, you know, even that, even that one, uh, shaking my hips like, yeah. I mean, I love that line. Um, moving my hips like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The song we can't stop is not the most like energetic song, but it's a, it's a great tune. You want it playing at a party, even as you dislike Miley Cyrus, which you can, which lots of people do, you can recognize that the songs are well-crafted and this song is boring and it feels like an apology and that's unfortunate. Oh, that's a great point. A song that feels like an apology. Okay, let's go there. Yeah, so let's get real. What does an apology feel like and who is she apologizing to and why, what is she apologizing for? So to me, in all of her quotes in the Billboard article, which is a very, it's almost the take on, oh, I'm all grown up now that I'm sure they wrote when she was 18. It's the same article regurgitated again. I don't do those things anymore, except now those things are smoking or swearing or whatever. And part and parcel of all that is, oh, she's back with Liam now. And it feels, look, I think he's probably a wonderful guy and like a face every mother would love and the whole thing. But It feels like sleeping with the enemy. It feels like she is whitewashing her entire image in order to be somebody worthy of this bland blonde dude that she wants to marry. Why? And it's interesting that you use the term whitewashing because she's already white. So what is she washing off? Well, and that's the other criticism, right? That she put on and took off uh, a something that obviously wasn't authentic and be something that wasn't hers to begin with, right? The idea that the new authentic Miley or Miley 3, uh, if we're keeping track, uh, was, yeah, that she loved twerking and she had all these backup dancers and no, this is that sound and these black dancers are authentically who represents me and how I feel and yeah. whatnot. As to if, quote from We Can't Stop, she was about that life. Right. Yeah. Um, thank you for that, uh, for that quote. Yeah. But... First of all, you can't, as we well know, you cannot put on and take off a culture like a costume. Of course, she says, no, that was just, those were the dancers I just liked. Those were the people I identified with, as though she wasn't emulating a dance style, a music style that did, that she didn't come by honestly. And now, of course, it's like, well, that was just a phase. There are myriad reasons which we can parse about why that's problematic, but Not the least of which is, oh, that kind of party music being about that life, if you will, uh, was a phase, was immature. That to be mature Mm -hmm. is to grow out of sort of that more urban music, pardon the euphemism for the moment, and into this bland thing about living in Malibu where, yeah, I'm just going to, everybody's white. Yeah. And super fucking rich. And boring. You don't live in Malibu when you don't have money. Sorry. 
like it's not a, a postal code or sorry, in the US they call it a what? A zip code. A zip code um, that is exactly varied. How about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, you know, with this whole, this whole Miley uh, evolution that we're seeing, it's not like artists and particularly female artists don't do this. We, a few weeks ago, talked about Katy Perry. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how female artists, for the most part, evolve. They have stages. You know, we brought up uh, Katy Perry. We talked a little bit about Taylor. Uh, you know, Taylor Swift did it from country to pop, right? It was uh, an announced, very, very calculated shift. One that she didn't shy away from. She was like, yes, I was country and now I want pop. And she went and took pop. Madonna, of course, has been through her career, the, you know, the, the queen master of reinvention. And we can go from desperately seeking Susan to borderline to blonde ambition to the girly show uh, to um, what the ray of light phase. I mean, yeah, we but have seen the, everyone do it, or I we've know, seen many people do it. But here's the thing with that: is that Madonna never claimed to cling to one, right? Like she was never like, "No, this is the real me, guys," as the Miley's and Taylors have done. Uh, she was like, "Yeah." This is it for now. Let's see what comes next. Okay, if I'm going to put on my pro Miley hat because a lot of we've got we've gotten some really strong emails from Miley fans in response to an article I wrote the other day criticizing the Malibu video. Um it was actually pretty great because the person writing was appealing to you directly, Duanna, almost as if I was a lost cause. I had, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I true. had written off Miley. I had criticized her for the taking on and taking off of blackness and black culture, and she mounted a very passionate defense at you um, for you to reconsider Miley to, to consider the fact that this is who she is. And so, if I'm going to put on that hat for that person. What she would say, and maybe, you know, many a millennial would say is, but that's really who I thought I was at that time. And you don't know that you're not that person until you're not that person anymore. But, you know, I think that an interesting thing is that we don't see everybody go through that. We see people, and I hesitate to assign the word wise to anybody who's a teenager or a young person. But you don't have to say, I am this and I'm only ever going to be this until I'm not this. Like, that's a really specific thing to choose. Uh, And Clara, who wrote the letter and who, you know, really did plea for for me to be on her side, uh, Miley has always been this person who's sort of like, I am all into this. She was, let's not forget, and I'm very sympathetic to this. She's one of the generation of stars who was encouraged to say she was wearing a purity ring, true love waits, all that kind of thing. Um, You know, and there's this real feeling that you have to go all or nothing. And I would even accept that she really did think she was that way, that she really evolved, except that in the Billboard article, we have quotes to the effect of, I fucking hate it when people can't adjust. (laughs) she's talking about, you know, kind of her new life and her new sound and things she doesn't do anymore. I fucking hate it when people can't adjust. 
that's, you know, that sounds like somebody that we have known before. And she's actually talking about Madonna and Gaga in their evolutions. Uh, and the idea that she resents people who want people to stay the same is kind of telling given that she's telling us every time, no, I'm different now. I'm fine. I'm just a girl in a sweater who wants a, a blonde, bland man to love her. And I promise I'm never going to be weird ever again or wear a cat costume. Liam, I'm sorry. Hi. Give me your diamond ring. It's so weird. The other thing is that the question, she says, I haven't smoked weed in three weeks. And he says, is it hard to not smoke? And she says, and I quote, it's easy, dude. When I want something, it's fucking easy for me. But if anyone told me not to smoke, I would have not done it. It's because it was on my time. It's still a really childish point of view. If, you know, if somebody said, oh, the thing, if somebody asked you and I about uh, things that we have given up, that we have loved, it would be like, oh, I wish I could. I wish I could go out every night all the time. I'm old. I'm tired. Or, yeah, I really loved it, but, you know, you got to pay the price somewhere and it meant I was paying the price in my vocals or whatever. This defiance, this like, no, it's super easy for me when I don't want something, meh, 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 meh. But if people tell me not to do something, I feel like this whole Miley is a reaction to the people who said, and again, this might be, I don't know, the family members of the blonde bland who said, oh, that's not the right girl for you. That's a gross, culturally appropriating, tongue-sticking, mm -hmm. twerking girl. Yeah. And she's gone on this mission to prove that she is respectable. I, I did not want to bring Liam Hemsworth into this conversation about Miley. Part of it is because, as we always say, I want to take especially a woman's decision at her value, at her at her face value. So I know that you would agree that for the most part, we adhere to that principle. And yet I agree with you in this case, it is hard to divorce Miley's new phase with her getting back together with Liam Hemsworth. And it goes back to when they did get back together and the language around them getting back together. I wrote many, many articles on Laney Gossip about the fact that I didn't like the reporting around it. It was all about how she had changed and how she had mellowed out and how he appreciated what she was now. It was never really about how they came together again as a couple, how he realized that he needed to fix a few things. Um, it was all about how she went through this wild era, she had to go explore it, and now she's come home to who she really is. And so, again, to go back to your point, it's hard to separate this new identity of hers, the shedding of 2013 to 2016, so to speak, and not relate it back to the guy. And I guess, is this an example of, you know, why this isn't sitting well is because is it authentic if you're doing it for someone else's love? Absolutely. You know, I think that lots of people would point out that in the best relationships, uh, the most functional relationships, even if they're not successful. You know, sometimes a celebrity couple breaks up and we're brokenhearted. And after a while, maybe not in a uh, Brad Pitt makes America great again interview, but subsequently 
they say things such as, oh, when I was with so-and-so, they really were about seeing the world in this way. And you sort of get the idea that they appreciate each other for people, even if they were incompatible. And you don't get that sense here. You know, she is asked, you pointed out, I think last week or the, the week before, about the art or lack thereof of a question and answer interview where the questions and the answers are printed ostensibly yeah. as asked, right? And so she's talking about sort of her ideas of gender standards, which I will spare you because they feel a bit high school. And then the follow-up question is after, I'll give you one phrase. She, I'm super open, pansexual, that's just me. The follow-up phrase is, do you want your dudes to be dudes? Not even. That really grosses me out. I always get in trouble for generalizing straight men because straight men can be my worst nightmare sometimes. And I'm with a straight dude, but he's always like, well, don't call me that. I ask him sometimes, do you like being a boy? And he's like, I don't really think about it. And that's so crazy to me because I think about being a girl all the time. And it's like, I'm weird that I'm a girl because I just don't feel like I'm a girl and I don't feel like a boy. I just feel like nothing. <laughs> That's eight contradictions in three sentences. Well, it sounds like somebody who's holding their breath between bong hits in a dorm, right? Yeah. It's eight contradictions. It's my dude who's a dude. There's nothing about who he is as a person, and she may be trying to avoid that, but there's nothing that gives us any indication that this is anything other than the sort of male-female weird dynamic that we've been led to believe it is. You know, Miley Cyrus is not an idiot. She's kind of media savvy. Yes? You agree with this? Yes. Not so calculated, maybe, as some, but media savvy. Media savvy, yes, in that she is of the moment. She knows which tools of the media to use in order to get a message across. However, I do not think she's good at crafting a message. Do you think she's guileless? I honestly believe that Miley believes what she's saying. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that there is any malicious or nefarious intent. I don't think that she says these things and then closes the door on the journalist and says, I really got, I really pulled one over on that person. As opposed to some people we've profiled here That's who right. really do. That's right. Some who are younger, less experienced, That's right. but a lot more calculating. I agree with you. And that's because, as you point out, there are eight contradictions in that sentence. Yes. Which, again, I don't think that she sees. So my point is, when you say she's not an idiot, I will say she might not be an idiot, but I don't think she's as smart as she thinks she is. And smart is a very, it's a loaded word. So allow me to clarify, I don't think she's as mature. And with maturity comes wisdom. And I don't think she's as wise as she thinks she is. Miley, to me, when I listen to her speak, I still say to myself, you are young. Yeah, it's a teenage kind of perspective. Everything about the rebelliousness that is still there, just kicking under the surface, and the changing for a dude. And even, as you just pointed out, the fact that we keep bringing up this dude. This is not how we talk about women usually or not even how we know about the amount that we know about who their partners no, are. And I don't like it, but I, I also don't think that we can have an honest conversation about Miley right now 
without it. The, the song Malibu is dedicated to him. And it makes her feel uh, like a term you and I have used a lot to describe a few people that we have known in our lives, male and female. She's a shapeshifter. She's a chameleon. She adapts to whatever she thinks the world around her wants to see and hear, except in this case, it sounds like the world around her is one bland blonde dude. Yeah. And he may be very interesting, but in the context of this conversation, he becomes bland and blonde. And you know what the word that just popped into my head is? And it's a word that we have been increasingly disparaging. Like it's not usually an adjective that we apply to someone that we are complimenting, but I I just can't get away from it. It's earnest. Somehow Miley, even in her even in her quote-unquote scandalous phase, was earnest. Yeah, there's no polish to it, right? It's all very like ad hoc. It does feel dorm roomy. It's like, no, 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 guys, like I'm doing this thing, this gender workbook thing, and it's all very like, okay, just take it easy. I'd be better with it if there was a wink. You know, even in her twerky foam finger time, there was no wink. It was all just like, blah. Um, here it is because this is what it is and this is what I believe in. It was so earnest. And I think that I, I, I don't know how you get away from that without just more experience and more maturity, which worries me for Miley because given her reaction to the criticism of this interview, um, particularly with the cultural appropriation, which is not the first time she's had to address the issue, this time in comparison to last time and the time before, she hasn't learned anything. Well, this is the thing. You know, I misheard you when you said, I wish there was a wink. I thought you said, I wish there was wit. Mm-hmm. And That a, too. Yeah. A bit of wit would help. And you talked about her being not very wise and not carrying around a lot of maturity or wisdom. And the problem is that she's loud and outspoken. And you can be loud or stupid but not both, you know, and loud and stupid is kind of a lethal combination and one that she keeps coming back to over and over and over again. It's okay to say, I don't know, and to be loud about it. It's okay to say, I made mistakes and I'm not sure I can figure them out, but it's this assurance. I'm here now. I know what I'm doing. I got it now. I have it this time. And then setting your watch for 29 months from now where we're going to have the same thing. Yeah that feels a little bit exhausting and a little bit inclined to pity. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I'll tell you, I, if I'm going to be very honest, I find this whole thing, this whole new Miley, the billboard interview, Malibu, even the visual in the Malibu video with the fresh white outfits, um, a, a, a face that's made up to look not made up, the ocean, the nature… There's Sweater an, and underwear. There's an, un, there's an underlying message there. You know, there is an underlying message of wholesomeness and purity that she's putting back on. And I find all of this actually quite disappointing. And the reason why I'm using that word is because I like Miley a lot. I wanted, or maybe I wanted to like Miley. One of the things, one of the reasons why I am a fan, was a fan, is because I do think she has an incredible voice. 
I um I remember she performed on Saturday Night Live and Yasik made me rewind it and he was like, My God, like she can she can sing the fuck out of that song. So there was a time two was years it ago. Was it the mountain? Was it the mountain? Mm-hmm. It's the climb. Is that the one? No, it was uh the um Miley's Dead Pets era. Like She's been on the on the uh, the show a few times. So obviously the first time she sang Wrecking Ball on Saturday Night Live. And then she went back and she was at a piano. And she remember she had her hair in dreadlocks at that point and she sang a song um about her dog, her 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 dog that had yeah, died. Yeah. And it wasn't even that great of a song, but the way she sang it, she sang the shit out of the song. And Yasik was like, she there is so much raw talent there. Um and I believe, I, I really, really wanted, every time Miley kind of screws up or is misdirected, I actually have said, look, I think there's, there's so much potential here. Like once she just grows up a little bit, I think we can get there. She can be oh, as, as, as pressure laden as this is what I hope she can be. And I, I feel actually very let down. What's so interesting is that even though we've been talking about this for two weeks and uh, have been waiting for the song, I somehow have never scrolled down to see the Billboard cover until now. And it's so interesting that you say, I'm disappointed because Miley on this Billboard cover looks almost the way you might look right before your mother said, I'm disappointed in you. This is a picture of a, is she 26? 24. This is a picture of a 24-year-old woman dressed up as 15. Her face is, as you say, fresh scrubbed. She's wearing a pink party dress and her hair is drawn back off her face the way your mother says, dry your hair back off your face so we can see you. It's so nice to see your beautiful face. And you go, mom, but you're not actually going to have the terrible boyfriend who she thinks is bad news for another year. There's this return to innocence And to, as we keep saying, blandness, and it would be so great if it really were just a costume and a phase and an experiment in how well you can recast yourself as a virgin, even after you've been the bad girl. But I don't think she's doing it for any sort of calculation. And I don't know. And that's, I'm wondering if I should stop waiting. And that's what's the shitty question. Yeah, I think there's that thing. I was talking with somebody about how parts of your brain aren't fully formed until you're 25. But if you've spent the time making those final brain folds uh, changing into whatever everybody else wants you to be, I don't know if you can hold out a lot of hope that she's suddenly going to find the backbone that you liked so much when she was 18 years old. Well, here's a quote before we move on. Uh, from this Billboard article, um, she's asked whether or not the album is pretty singer-songwriting. Her answer, yeah, but not granola. I don't listen to Ed Sheeran and John Mayer and stuff. And the fact of the matter is, is that this song, at least this Malibu song, is exactly John Mayer and Ed Sheeran. Uh, okay, look, we need to move on. I'm not going to start a fight, but John Mayer would be embarrassed to release this song. This you is- have heard John Mayer's new music, right? Like, I just want to, even Michelle, our friend who with you co-defends John Mayer all the time, had to concede that John Mayer's music 
and his new album is unlistenable. Okay, John Mayer's trying to apologize for something else. And if you really want an insight into <laughs> our lives, you can uh, shout out to me and Michelle, who we will uh, make sure gets your letters. Michelle's not on your side anymore. If you know who James Morrison is, and James Morrison should have all the love that John Mayer got. Uh, and similarly, probably there's somebody languishing in the world that Miley lives who is more deserving. But this song definitely really is not. And it doesn't bode well for anything more. So we've been talking about Miley as a shapeshifter. Mm-hmm. Um, another person that some people have called a shapeshifter. I don't know if I agree with it in the definition that you applied to Miley is Lady Gaga. Oh, God. No, she's not a shapeshifter at all. Some people, I'm just saying, some people would say, but Lady Gaga, if we're talking about- Who are those people? Because I want to fight them. Okay. Well, you know, you always do this. You always like, you always, I tell you something and you're like, who are these people? Like, and I'm just telling you, they exist. You're always saying to me, like, I I love it, you say to me, when you're mean to people who need a slap. And let's just go ahead and say that those people need a slap because some people would say that she's a shapeshifter. Some people have obviously no- pop culture vocabulary. I agree with you. I don't think Lady Gaga is a shapeshifter. That said, Lady Gaga has been one of those artists who's evolved um, and reinvents every once in a while. Not unlike the way Madonna does. But I don't even know if to me, and I'm a huge Madonna fan, I will defend most of her moves up to, say, Five years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ten years ago, yeah. Uh, But... Lady Gaga, to me, has never settled on a persona that she's then moved on from after a while. It was keeping you on your toes and never knowing what to expect. Like, every other day was a new thing. Every day was an experiment, a costume, a social construct. Uh, You know the marshmallow experiment, where if you put a marshmallow in front of a kid and then tell them you'll be back in five minutes, that whatever they do tells you who they're going to be as an adult. Right. I feel like Lady Gaga's outfits are the marshmallow tests of of the way we react to her. Right. Um, so, yeah, I would argue that she's not a shapeshifter because she never rested on a shape. Except. Except. Um, well, I mean, maybe not except. I would say that the difference, and there are many between Lady Gaga and Miley Cyrus, is that when Lady Gaga moves on from meat dresses to Tony Bennett yeah. and, you know, Jessica Rabbit style, she doesn't reject what she was two months ago. The way that Miley is rejecting what she was two minutes ago. No, for sure. And part of that is because when you call yourself Lady Gaga, you know, nobody is born being Lady Gaga. So there's already that acknowledgement that there's a persona that you create and that you put on, even if lots of it are parts of yourself, uh, that it's not your total real you, you know, or like, uh, even John Legend and Alicia Keys are people where those aren't their real given names guys, which, uh, in, in one case took me longer than I should have to figure that out. Yeah. But there's an idea that it's a version of you. It's a persona of you, but not your whole thing. Not Miley going, no, man, no, this is the real me. That's right. So interestingly enough, you talk about Lady Gaga as a persona, and that is who we know her as, but Lady Gaga is now working with Bradley Cooper on the remake or a modernization of A Star is Born. Um, 
Very famous movie, of course, from… Several movies. Like, I mean, there have been several iterations, but Mm -hmm. I feel like most people, at least who are listening now, will know the, what, Chris Christopherson, Barbara Streisand version, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, Lady Gaga will not be credited as Lady Gaga on that film. She will be Stephanie Germanotta. So, you are a pop culture observer and a name therapist… Check out the book, The Name Therapist by Duana Taha. Um, Tell me what you think of Lady Gaga saying, no, in this movie, please call me Stephanie. And Bradley Cooper is going around doing interviews. He was on Ellen and he called her Stephanie. Um, he was like, yeah, when I work with Stephanie, it's just like working, you know, and that was, and you know, you could, you could hear the audience being like, mm, Marmaduke. And, um, <laughs> and then, then he had to be like, that's Gaga for everybody else. What do you think? I love this. I love every bit of this. Uh, so Lady Gaga slash Stephanie Germanata, uh, went to an arts high school. She went to, I believe, LaGuardia School of the Arts. And she, I think, wanted to be an actress originally. And like many people, it used to be that there was this sort of criticism of, oh, you want to act and now you think you can sing? Let's just get real about this. Many people who are performers are multi-talented. They have often trained in many disciplines. Okay? Can we just get over this? Sometimes people can sing and act. Thank you very much. Let's move on. Okay, but Madonna can't. No, Madonna can't. Sorry. (laughs) But she's the exception that proves the rule. Uh, Okay. I think that there are others, but I, I get your point that there are many. I like, just want yes. to not linger on, oh, can an uh, can an actress be a singer now? Yeah, they can't. It's fine. Yes. So she had these aspirations at, you know, at a time from the time she was very young and worked very hard. And as we say, the success that she achieved as Lady Gaga was the personification of the types of songs that she wanted to sing and the musical career, and the messages that she felt were really important. But Stephanie Germanata, the actress, is totally untried, is untapped, unless you count, like, the telephone video, which I don't. Um, well, that's really interesting that you say that. Um, and I, I, it's not that I disagree with you. I just think it's interesting, that particular point, because uh, Lady Gaga has won a Golden Globe for acting. Right. Uh, that was American Horror… Story. Right. But here's the thing with that, though. Lady Gaga, like, let's be real here, and I've been parsing this term recently, Lady Gaga is camp, is camp personified. Lady Gaga took, like, the camp mantle that the Spice Girls had walked in mm-hmm. and, like, began having sex with it in public. Like, she's camp personified. Yeah. And the only person more camp than Lady Gaga is Ryan Murphy. <laughs> Yes. Like, that's the unholy marriage and copulation of more camp. I don't know why I have a sex metaphor going here, but I really feel like it's it's camp. It's over the top. It's all so much. And when it's done well, lest you think I am being disparaging, camp can really be a neat style and gets its, its point across. But that's not A Star is Born, and that's not Barbara Streisand, and that's not what we're trying to do with this film. And I think that the the move to Stephanie, and I think it's pretty clear that she can go back and forth when she wants to, that some projects may be a Lainey Gaga project. You said Lainey Gaga. Well, that might be why. 
Some <laughs> projects can be a Lady Gaga project, and some projects can be a Stephanie project. Uh, so my Freudian slip there wasn't an accident. Uh, when when you and I met in a professional context, uh, you know, it was like, oh yeah, Lainey, this girl from Lainey Gossip is going to be doing some stuff with us. But when you and I would be talking on the phone, you'd say, oh, hey, it's Elaine. Hi, is this a good time? And so that was something that you really presented. The difference between Lainey and Elaine is a, uh, you know, it's not a secret. It's not like there's a real weird veneer and Lainey comes in one door and Elaine goes out another, but they have slightly different jobs almost. True? Yes. Elaine, Louie, is what shows up on my book cover. Exactly. Yeah. It's a it's a type of work that you do. Uh, and Lainey and Lainey Gossip are another place for another side of what you do. Fair yeah, enough? Fair enough. Now, what I love about this, and I totally agree with you, you said you love the Stephanie Germanotta transition or at least the um, taking on of Stephanie Germanotta for this film. Now, I really like how – it's being told to us as a promise. I'm oh. really looking forward now. I mean, I was actually curious about this film, you know, right when they announced it from the beginning when it was supposed to be Beyonce and then it became Lady Gaga and I'm, I'm interested in it now. And now there's another layer of interest because Lady Gaga has told me, don't expect to see me. You will be meeting somebody who has, for the most part, in my showbiz life, not had very much of a platform, and I will be giving her to you. Well, you know, and there's, like, not for nothing, but it's a bit precious. The phrase is, a star is born, starring Stephanie Germanotta, yeah. right? Like, this is the birth of this person as a show business personality who is separate from, you know, mother monster who birthed her or whatever. Yeah. And now, with that comes perhaps heightened expectations, because... The Lady Gaga I know, I mean, you use the adjectives camp, um, over the top, and Lady Gaga, whatever. She speaks in a certain way with a certain affectation, Lady yeah, Gaga does. Yeah. So I don't want to see that now. Oh, you mean that faux, like, that, Catherine Hepburn, that, British-y thing that, that she does? That drawl and that British-y thing, right? Like, she is a woman from the 1950s. I was trying to approximate it in a in a column today. Yes, that that flat A. That's right. I am Lady Gaga. That's right. Yeah. And as Stephanie Germanotta starring in A Star is Born, now I'm curious, what do you sound like, Stephanie Germanotta? Who who like how do you speak? Where did Stephanie grow up? Long Island? Um, I don't know. New Yorkie? <laughs> Those both apply, but uh, stand by here. Uh, New York City, actually, but that doesn't tell us uh, which borough. I like to pretend I know things about New York by saying which borough and saying things about the trains. Uh, but yeah, I think she may have grown up in Manhattan. In which case, yeah, that affected Catherine Hepburn accent that you're talking it's about. It's bullshit. Yeah, it doesn't come from anywhere. Now, I'll take it from Lady Gaga because, as you said, Lady Gaga is a performance. But now, if you're going to tell me that a star is born, Stephanie Germanotta, then I'm very curious. I mean, I cannot wait for this trailer. I cannot wait to see a preview. Uh, because, yeah, I expect to meet someone entirely new. I'm excited, and now I have expectations. Now... You got to meet it. 
which we both love. We both love somebody who kind of throws down this thing, this like, hey, how you like me now? Right. And the only thing I'll say about that is that, as you often say, plans like this require uh, 2017's buzzword, complicity. And Bradley Cooper has already given you the buy-in. She's worthy of being called Stephanie because he's referring to her as Stephanie. Wait for Steph to come out. Like when people talk about working with Bobby De Niro. Uh, <laughs> That's right. So I imagine that uh, that there's a, yeah, he's given it his sign off. That's a little cue that you're supposed to give it your sign off too. And that whatever you're waiting for is going to be worth the wait. Or as you put it, the promise. Now, can, before we sign off on this segment of the show, can I just go back to your rant about, yes, they can, can we just go back to your rant about, yes, they can be singers and actors? Because I just have one more example <laughs> of, <laughs> of the ones who can't. I just have one more example. Just let me have this. And you, you won't be sorry, I promise. Just let me have it. I just want to point out that there's like a flurry of dogs happening around <laughs> us because they are so ready to roll their eyes with They're me. They're feeding. No, they will not roll their eyes. You will not roll your eyes. I cited Madonna as an example. Madonna can't act. No, but that's her like primal wound, right? Madonna has been trying to fix the fact that she cannot yes. act since we met her. I will tell you who else has a primal wound that's similar. Justin Timberlake cannot act. Oh, yeah, Justin Timberlake can't act, but that's fine. Like, he's not really required to. I'm surprised. What are you talking about? He's, like, been trying to be in movies, or he is in movies, lots of movies. People put him in movies. But I'm surprised at you because, yeah, people put him in movies, but he plays Justin Timberlake every time, which he's happy to do. That's why he's been a five-time host of Saturday Night Live, because he's really good at playing Justin Timberlake, which is not the same thing as being an actor. You can't like, act, fucker. With the notable exception that proves the rule being the social network. But that's a conversation for another time. Well, I have... Okay. Stop doing that. Stop doing that because then I'm going to have to answer it. My quick answer to that is that David Fincher worked around that with Quick Cuts, NPS. He was Justin Timberlake. Obnoxious, brash. I mean, it okay, wasn't so exactly a stretch. Okay, look. I got it, but not every time a singer decides to act or an actress decides to sing, do we need to be like, oh, really? You're right. Not every time. Just in his case, we do. You can have that. Great. All Thank you. Want. you. Uh, Kelly Ripa. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I mean, yes. Kelly Ripa. So, you can't just shout a name at me so that I'll shut right. up on the point that annoys you. Quick recap, Kelly Ripa, Michael Strahan. We all know the big cluster fuck of fuck well, that happened. Well, let's find it all the way back, shall yeah. we? Let's do a little a little brief, a little Kelly Ripa. So the world is introduced to Kelly Ripa when after a long search of a bajillion hosts, uh, they announced that the new co-host for Regis to replace Kathy Lee will be this beautiful charming former soap star Kelly Ripa. 
I don't know that I was paying that much attention to daytime TV at the time, but it seemed like universal love. People really, really thought she was adorable. For the morning, she was perfect. It's like when, stay with me, it was like Elizabeth Hasselbeck original recipe when she was still Elizabeth Polarski, uh, the fifth chair on The View after having been on Survivor. That's right. Like charming, bushy-tailed, really cute, cute reactions. Great. And then Callie Ripa became a star. Like no joke. Yes? Oh, a star. The camera loves her. The format loves her. As you say, for the morning, she was perfect. Perfect. And so that continued up to when Regis retired. And that's really when her problems began. Yeah. So Regis retires. They go through an audition process. They land on Michael Strahan, who was great. Well, and they did a whole thing, right? Like they did a whole mating and dating sort of routine for a year or more of who will it be? Yeah. Who are the, all the go? All the guests were considered or they had other jobs, so they weren't considered, but it was it was supposed to keep us all guessing. That's right. So they land on Michael Strahan, of course, who was a football player. Um, at that point, I'm going to say he was untested. He had been part of the audition process and he obviously set himself apart and he quickly became very popular yeah. on the show. I mean, I know people who watch Kelly or watched Kelly and Michael every single day and loved him. Um and I wonder if that was a blessing and a curse, right? Because he was so good that he caught the attention. I mean, he was already doing football analysis on panels and, and whatnot, um, but he caught the attention. He became very important to ABC, became really important to the network. And so, you know, good morning, America, and he's so good. And okay, they want okay, him and, but yeah. let's back up for a second because what you didn't say was, you said, oh, he was so good. Mm -hmm. You didn't say they were so good. Well, I'm giving you from the perspective of, like ABC saying, he's so good, we want him on Good Morning but America. But I want to really parse and clarify it because yeah. when, when there's chemistry, mm -hmm. you don't fuck with chemistry, mm -mm. right? When something is perfect, when something is amazing, then what you see is they're the best, they're the stars. Right. And I think that's what Regis and Kelly had, right? It's not easy. Chemistry is one of those ephemeral things. You can't buy it. You can't grow it. But... I think what we learned is that Michael and Kelly were both excellent. They both had sort of on-camera charisma, but they didn't necessarily have a real bond. A no, well, after a while, certainly not. You right. Could, you could see the fissures. The fissures? Mm-hmm. What's that? Like a, like a fissure. Oh, in a, a fissure. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was like, what, what do you mean? Like fishing for, for gossip? Like what are we talking about here? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, Fissures. Yes. If you need a word bubble, everybody, we'll, we'll put it on the, on the site. But you said she got annoyed. She got annoyed because she found out about his departure sort of seconds before she was supposed to go on air on the Monday where they announced well, it. Well, no, she didn't get annoyed. She got pissed. But she was getting annoyed leading up to that point because his time, he was distracted. He was distracted, but also, you know, first of all, nobody was shopping for her. Mm -hmm. Second of all, uh, he was distracted, as you say. And thirdly, it's making her job more difficult. Her job is to be, you know, what Rosie O'Donnell professed to be in a way that is now deliciously ironic. Kelly Ripa is kind of supposed to be the queen of nice. 
And part of her job, and she knows it because she's done it, is to have that chemistry. Like, ironically, when they had that parade of co-hosts, everybody from Ryan Seacrest, wait for it, to Neil Patrick Harris, to uh, our friend Ben Mulroney, to so forth, she has chemistry with almost anybody. She can create that rapport, but it takes work. And when he's not there, she's having to put in more effort to cultivate that rapport. And if his heart isn't in it, then he's not giving as good as she gets. That's right. So he leaves. He leaves. There's a huge production. It's like the top headline for weeks. Um, And it gets to the point where they together come back on the show. Remember, she was like, I'm not doing this or whatever. She got pissed off and she walked away and she was like, and well, they had to took, like. she took, sorry. Yeah, she took, she took a scheduled vacation but left early. An unscheduled, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I kind of fully supported her doing that. Like, I did not think it was diva-esque because, you know, her bosses have her over a barrel. She has to show up and smile every morning. She can't exactly protest or say, let's not put the show on until we work this out. They need her to be there every morning at nine. And she is, or gives the impression of being a professional. You're all going to email me with stories about Kelly Ripa. And I've heard those stories, but they don't usually impede the production of the show. And so the only way she can show her displeasure and vote essentially is with her feet by not showing up because she's not going to let it show up on yeah. the show. I mean, I agreed with it too. But what happened was make what happened was Michael Strahan left and then they spent a year looking for a new co-host and of course recently it was announced that it's going to be Ryan Seacrest. Hooray! We have it. We know it. He's sure. a TV professional. He has 18 jobs. They he- look like The Flowers in the Attic siblings, like they're (laughs) really close together, but sure, yes. Here's someone who is reliable, who who has proven that he can do a radio show and host a singing competition and do the ball drop in Times Square and go to the Olympics. And all the red carpets and he gives 100% like she does. He's not going to leave her high and dry. He is going to match her effort for effort. Everything is matched. They are there. They are incestuous siblings. It's really weird now that I think about it, but it's all fine. And then not even two weeks onto the job, they announced that there's going to be a reboot of American Idol and that he is being considered or the front runner. I mean, depending on whatever report you're reading, but they're basically saying he wants the job. They're going to give him the job. ABC is rebooting American Idol from Fox. It's been, what, 18 months now since it's been dead? And she allegedly, according to a report in page six, is really pissed off because she's like, what do you mean he just started on this show? And like, no joke. Look, as you say, at press time, we do not know how much of this story is rooted in rumor and how much of it is actually going to happen. Here's what I know for sure without even asking. I know it's being discussed. Of course it's being discussed. If you have a juggernaut hit like American Idol, you want to recreate as much of it that worked as you can, and people loved Ryan Seacrest. That's where a lot of people got to know him. That's why he gets to do those red carpets and ball drops and radio shows, because people, America, loved him. So you'd be a fool to not at least consider having him resume that position, whether or not he actually does. Well, I... 
Look, I mean, all the things that you said, I 100% back. I think there are going to be people out there who listen to this and like scoff and whatever, Ryan Seacrest. But please remember that the people who watch TV are not necessarily the people who live online. We live online. So I get the snark about Ryan Seacrest on the red carpet and how boring you think that choice was. But the audience for American Idol was millions and millions and millions and millions. He still… He still has that radio show. The audience for Kelly and Ryan is not going to necessarily Venn diagram with you guys, you know, the people who read our site. So this is what they chose him for, this mass popularity. The familiarity. That's right. You know, and it's not so easy. One of the things is to make an easy looking job look easy. That in itself is very difficult. And if you need proof, all I have to say to you is Brian Dunkelman. If you remember, and you don't because it's been erased from all our memories, American Idol was, of course, the format bought from Pop Idol in the UK, and they had two hosts. So in the first year, there were these two young hosts, Ryan Seacrest and Brian Dunkelman, and nobody had ever heard of either of them. And then after that, nobody ever heard of Brian Dunkelman ever again. He's a (laughs) pop culture punchline. That's right. And Ryan Seacrest became Ryan Seacrest. So it's not easy to do. It's it's easy, I guess… It is easy to screw up a job like that where you're supposed to be the friend and host and warmth and inside eye to all of America, quite literally. So, you know, it would be a serious consideration if you are the American Idol bosses, if you're the network bosses. But if you're Kelly Ripa and you just lost, broke with a co-host because of um, other interests… And other shows. And then your newly cemented co-host is also going to embark on another job. And it may have been the same job he did before, but for all intents and purposes, when she took him on, when she said, this is the guy, he wasn't doing American Idol. Do you feel like it's history repeating itself? Here's another reason why this story is really interesting to me. I think that it resonates with a lot of women because they wouldn't be considering doing this if Kelly was in trouble, if the show was in trouble, if they didn't know that any late-night absences or travel that he might have or anything of the kind couldn't be filled in by her because she's so reliable. She's such a workhorse. She can do it. And that's a really nice way to be, and it's a really nice thing for your bosses to feel up to a point. You know, I can see a place where Kelly Ripa feels like she's not getting the support, like she doesn't deserve the consistency, like she's not entitled to a co-star who's as committed. And I think there are a lot of women in a lot of workplaces, and men too, but often it is women who kind of say, I do my job perfectly day in and day out, and I get no acknowledgement of how hard I work to be this consistent And the dude over there who does the flashy thing gets all the credit. And what is with that? Like, why isn't hard work rewarded? Why is it kind of noisy work that's rewarded after only two weeks on the job? Right. I'm the one holding it down. Yeah. And even if there's no truth to this rumor, even if he's not really being considered to host American Idol, the idea that he might be poached or at least split from his super hot, high-profile job to do his other 
super hot, high-profile job, that boosts his profile. That makes him seem even more in demand. And she continues to be what she has been for the last, what, 20 years? Which is reliable Kelly who shows up to work except for a two-day unscheduled vacation when she was annoyed last year. Yeah, I mean, look, in her mind, what she's saying is, can't we just get some consistency? Can't we just, we just did this thing. Can we just get like a year under our belt where we uh, reintroduce this show to our regular viewers and we develop a rhythm and then see where already two weeks into it, she's like, well, Jesus Christ, like, okay, so he's going to fly out um, to LA on the weekends, maybe shoot the show on Sunday, then take the red eye, shoot the morning show. And then on two nights of the week, when the results shows are, he has to get on another flight, fly to New York, shoot that, then get right back on and make it for the morning. Even if they move production to New York, uh, you know, because of reasons they're not going to, because yeah. his radio show or whatever is still in Seacrest Enterprises. We've all heard that story that Ryan Seacrest has all his jobs arranged in, in an office tower in LA so that he just descends from yeah. one floor to another to maximize his efficiency. So even if they do that, he still has interest in LA that he either has to deal with or, wait for it, live with Kelly and Ryan, moves to LA for the season and her life gets disrupted. Right. And she, again, is left holding the bag going, seriously? Yeah. Again, I'm the one who sucks it up? Yeah. Seriously. Is it the pressure or the handcuff of the seat, though? And here's what I mean by that. Hear me out. So before it was Regis and Kathy Lee. Yes. And Kathy Lee leaves and Regis holds it down and they find Kelly. Mm-hmm. Kelly at the time was on All My Children? It was a soap opera. It was a soap. Okay. I got to Google. Maybe yeah. All My Children. Okay. So Kelly at the time was on All My Children, which she continued to do. She continued to shoot All My Children for a little while. Then uh, she left All My Children. Now, remember, Regis is the one holding it down. He's in that seat. Um, and so she, you know, does the new show, the morning show, continues to shoot All My Children, at some point leaves All My Children, but then she had the sitcom. Um, Hope the and sit- Faith. That's right. So she got the sitcom, which wasn't a short run. I mean, like, I feel like it was at least three seasons. Um, so she... Then uh, does Hope and Faith, and at that point, um, Regis was nearing retirement. Hope and Faith ends, and she takes on the seat. Well, here's what's interesting about that. Uh, I don't disagree with you that, you know, there were other projects that she was doing. But it's really interesting, because I wouldn't have known it before you listed them, but those are all projects where it's on Kelly to show up and make it work Mm -hmm. and not the other way around. So first of all, when she signs on with Regis, he's already a gentleman of a certain age, right? He has his routine and Mm -hmm. she's going to fit into it. The morning meetings would have been whenever he said they were. That's right. Uh, The, you know, the stories that she wanted to do that he hated, those never get on air. Yeah. Right? And then she goes to All My Children where, and I think everybody knows this, but soap operas are shot essentially live. Uh, at an incredible pace. Incredible pace. You learn 20, 30 pages of dialogue. A day. A day. They are churned out every day. And you show up on the set and they are shot, uh, you know, yeah, essentially live, as we say, with 
very little rehearsal time. So Kelly has to show up on time to get yeah. herself into wardrobe, into makeup, into whatever. They're not holding shit. No, they're not really getting enough credit for that either. I mean, when you hear about stories of Johnny Depp having his lines read to him through an earpiece, yeah. and then you say, wow, he gets all this prestige. He's Johnny Depp and the paycheck. And soap opera actors are learning their lines without the fucking earpiece. Um, it's anyway, just that's as right. an aside. Yeah, it's no, they are absolutely. And that's why you meet a lot of actors who trained on soap operas because while they are not that prestigious, they are incredible training grounds for learning to hit your mark, learning mm-hmm. to read your lines, etc. Julianne Moore. Yeah. You slot into a soap opera is my point. That's right. Uh, she shows up and arrives there. Similarly, uh, Hope and Faith, if I remember correctly, is a studio show taped in front of a live studio audience. So you show up and you do your tapings and it's all in the moment. If she hadn't been able to do it, somebody else is going to do it. They can't work around a shooting schedule the way we sometimes hear, you know, oh, we grouped all my scenes together. So I was only in Toledo, Ohio, slash Hawaii, slash whatever for a week. It's not like that. All of these things require Kelly to fit the schedule and not the other way around. It's not that it's not the same with Ryan Seacrest in that American Idol goes live at a certain time and whatever. But the performances and the, you know, the votes and the moving parts are so big and so important, and this is the key, followed by so much of the country that if it turns out that, oh, Ryan couldn't fly back in time or, you know, the show has to retape a bit or whatever, it's so important to the network and it's so important to, this is hilarious, but the country that, yeah. Kelly can pick up the slack for him. And that's because, and this is the part that really stings, American Idol is a hit in a way that hope and faith never was. Mm -hmm. So all of this to say, yeah, she's been busting her ass for a long time with no thanks. And he gets to do the thing that is super high profile and that if he does it well, and he will, or even if he's considered for it, Uh, everybody will be like, oh, Ryan Seacrest is so great. It's so amazing how he does these things. When he doesn't do that job, everybody will say, we miss Ryan Seacrest. It is kind of no lose for him. Yeah. And she's once again going to stand there holding the bag. It's also, in this example, I'm curious um, about the network jumping. So – Ryan Seacrest is now on ABC with Kelly. ABC has also acquired the reboot of American Idol. Yet, Ryan Seacrest is also closely associated with E!, which is NBC Universal, which is why he was part of the Today Show and was part of the Today Show, you remember, the Olympic coverage. That is two major networks that are considered competitors. I mean, when we had the... um, Megan Kelly chat mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, or maybe a few months ago now, we talked about the morning show wars, right? Yes. How the Today Show slash NBC acquired Megan Kelly, how there's always been a fight, morning show fight between GMA, Good Morning America, and the Today Show. And Ryan Seacrest is getting paid by both. Now, or put another way, he is a big enough talent that they are willing to share. Most of the time, even in Megyn Kelly's case, yeah. if you get a better job somewhere, it's one or the other, babe. You walk. Yeah. But 
he is such a big star, he is so important, it's hard to find a comparison. Often when we talk about uh, movies and movie studios, uh, we'll hear things like, oh, they bought this movie for so-and-so. We bought this for Julianne Moore, or we got this package for Jennifer Lawrence or whatnot. There are very few people in this sort of realm of television hosting that can call these same shots. Oprah would have been somebody who could have had just about whatever she wanted uh, in terms of... Now, her show was syndicated, so it was a different deal. That's right. This was about Harpo and, you know, where Harpo wanted to be. But, you know, if she had gone to... If she had gone to a given network and said, you know, I'll give you X and Y Oprah specials and exclusives if you buy me whatever, uh, a franchise that she wanted to host, if she had wanted to host The Biggest Loser, may God forgive me for having put Oprah and The Biggest (laughs) Loser in the same sentence, they would have done that for her. They will do what the talent wants when the talent is big enough to warrant it. It's just interesting that Kelly Ripa isn't one of those talent who's big enough to warrant granting her request, which is a little goddamn stability. So we've just passed the first weekend of availability of Aziz Ansari's Master of None Season 2 on Netflix. Which is not necessarily a bingey show, right? Like, I love it, but I like to stretch it. I like to wait for people to be able to discuss it with me. Um, and especially given what I've heard about this season and how uh, it, it you know, really takes a departure. I'm looking forward to to savoring it. I binged the first season. I watched it in two days. Um, Did you go back and watch it again? Yeah, certain episodes. Yeah. The parents' I, episode. I feel like there are episodes of that show um, and the morning after pill and so forth that, like, involve – there's little, little gifts that you get the second time around. Yeah. But I did binge – I did binge the first season. Um, I am planning to at least get through three or four episodes. Um, Look, you're listening to this on Monday. Right now it's Friday, so I don't know if I will have fulfilled that plan. But I am planning to binge at least three episodes actually tonight. Like this was on my – like when I I left work today, I was thinking we're going to do the podcast, then I'm going to eat something, and then I'm running upstairs and I am like at least spending two hours with Aziz. I mean, you could do worse for a Friday night date. I know. So the thing about it is that, of course, you said with Aziz. Um, I think that you, among other people, have really been open about giving some love to his partner, Alan Yang, with whom he writes the show and who stars on the show as well. But this is the Aziz show. This is all about Aziz. And you know that this is forgive the term, like an auteur situation when uh, one of our favorite places, Vulture, hi Vulture, gives an entire article devoted to, it's an interview with Chris Rock, uh, probably, you know, in conjunction with the one that we talked about last week, except it's an entire article where they just ask him about Aziz Ansari. But I love this. Like, you know, we'll get back to Aziz in a second, but this is why we are so in love with Vulture for the last little while is because Vulture is doing this. So you write a profile on somebody, typically you go to other people and interview them about that person, the subject, and they'll include one or two quotes. And you don't know what the rest of the conversation is. What Vulture here has done is they've included the rest of the interview. 
Um, that almost never happens. And you want it to happen. Like the next time Vanity Fair profiles, I don't know, Jennifer Lawrence, and they call up Emma Stone to talk about Jennifer Lawrence, um, in addition to the two quotes they end up using for the profile, maybe as a companion, give me the entire Emma Stone conversation about Jennifer Lawrence. Well, but here's the the flaw in that philosophy, I think is, well, there's two. Number one, I was imagining being Emma Stone's assistant who would be like, Emma regrets that she's unable to uh, find time to give you a quote for this interview. Uh, But more importantly, I thought you were going to talk about not a lot of people are willing to do a whole interview about somebody else. The people who are willing to give you the whole interview about how somebody is are the people who went to high school with Brad Pitt. Right. This is the most ink they're going to see in a while. Most people who are themselves bold-faced names, God, I'm using a lot of terms I hate today, but a lot of people who are famous or well-known in their own right are a little too egotistical to do a whole interview about somebody else. Now, again, this probably was tacked on to a Chris Rock interview that was already happening, but man, it is in-depth and great. It's a great companion piece, too, to Chris Rock's cover story on Rolling Stone. So we talked about that last week. He has an interview with Rolling Stone in which he talks about himself. And this is quite an extensive interview in Vulture in which he only talks about Aziz. And come and coming out of it, both Aziz and Chris look awesome. They look even better than they did last week. When- That's right. In their own individual profiles. Yes. So when you talk about Emma Stone and Emma Stone's assistant, If this is what it's going to look like, more publicists and more managers should be looking at this format being like, listen, this is a fucking one-two punch. Okay, but that's really interesting because I bet you money, and look, I'm an Emma Stone fan. I think Emma Stone's great. I love to read an Emma Stone interview. But I bet you all the dollars in the world that when this whole thing was being set up, here's how it went down. Uh, The interviewer says, hey, Aziz, we want to do something with you about Master of None, and Aziz says, great, call my publicist and set it up or whatever. And then they said to Aziz Ansari, and not to a publicist, who should we speak to about you? And he says, oh, you know what? Call Chris. I'll give you his number. And I get, I bet you any money in the world that they called Chris Rock directly or contacted him directly through his assistant or whatnot. Well, no, then Aziz gives Chris the heads up. Yeah, for sure he gives Chris the heads up, but it's not also a negotiated thing through an, a formal Chris Rock publicist who is being paid, you know, 14% of X number of tours because he's at this multinational PR firm that has initials in the name. This was grassroots, I guarantee you. You know, I, what I should look up is whether or not they have the same publicist. Um, but, you know, my point being is if this is like, if you're a publicist and you're listening, this is it. This is your one-two punch because, again, I mean, as you said, Duanna, this vulture interview with Chris Rock about Aziz Ansari is almost better than the individual articles in Rolling Stone and Vulture about Aziz Ansari. Um, It's like, to me, and again, this is one of those articles, we had talked about the Chris Rock Rolling Stone piece last week and we said we could have done a whole hour Mm-hmm. on just that profile. And again, we could do a whole hour on Chris Rock talking about Aziz Ansari. There's so much work in this and so much insight. And one of the reasons, let's get real about why this is so good. One of the reasons is because it's so inimitably Chris Rock. Here's a quote. Ready? I've been in Hollywood a long time and I've never had a meeting with an Indian person. <laughs> Maybe none. 
Not that white people get hired because of that. I'm not saying that at all. He's getting specific in the ways that make it worth reading the article. There's not a goddamn euphemism there. It's about the reality of, yeah, you know what's not happening here is, yeah, Aziz Ansari is the first Indian man to have made it big. Although there is, I should say, Canadians, a hat tip to Russell Peters in this same conversation. Uh, also very kind because you know what? The fact of the matter is, is that Russell Peters' reputation is the one of the richest, most famous comedians that nobody's heard of. Russell Peters can actually walk down the street sometimes in New York or LA or London and not be recognized, which is like crazy because he's super rich. Like people go to see his shows. Well, if we're doing that digression, uh, Chris Rock goes on to say, Russell really made his bones on the road. He's one of the great road guys of our time, which is to say he's a traveling comedian. Of all time, yeah. I think he says. Um, he's, yeah, uh, of our time, he says. I think of all time is applicable as well. But the idea is, yeah, that he is worthy of being mentioned in the same sentence, even though we don't know him, right? It's like how when other uh, another swath of famous comedians like the the Louis C.K.'s and Judd Apatow's and Sarah Silverman start to talk about Dave Attell. That guy is only famous to other comedians, but they always mention him in the same context because he is part of the club. In fact, I'm going to go out on a whim and say comedians are well known for being dicks, but they're also frequently generous in this way. They give credit where credit is due. So this is a delicious read about a best friendship or a mentorship or whatever you want to call it. It's really fun and really exciting. Um, but it's also very, very, you know, it's not all blowing smoke. So I will read you my favorite quote. Uh, yeah. Because they say, and I hope, I bet it's your same favorite quote. Yeah. Yes. Probably. You know, they talk about how uh, and I should leave this for you to talk about because Aziz went so hard into stand-up in order to prep for his Saturday Night Live appearance. We talked a bit about that last week. Uh, and then the interviewer says, he told me he's temporarily quit, quit stand-up. And then it says, square brackets, italics, makes a sound like rolling his eyes over the phone. <laughs> Close brackets. Yes. He's calling him out on his bullshit. Chris Rock does not believe that Aziz Ansari is really giving up stand-up and, and this is the crucial point to me, not afraid to call him out in the press in front of everybody. But with experience maybe too, because you get the sense in this interview that uh, Chris really is a mentor for Aziz Ansari. Uh, Chris speaks like a mentor. He cites examples about when he's given his opinion about Aziz's career, the kinds of approaches that Aziz should take. For example, his SNL monologue, Aziz initially wanted to host Saturday Night Live on the weekend of Donald Trump's inauguration and do his regular dating, romance, whatever bit. And Chris was like, uh, are you fucking like stupid? No. Do you know the weekend that you're hosting? Take this example and direct yourself into like making new material and like make it happen. Like, no, that is not the right tone. Um, but my point was is that through experience, Chris is being like, I've probably said that before too, that I'm giving up stand-up. And I never did. So I can tell you with experience, this kid is not going to give up stand-up. And again, I think we talked about this last week, but I think probably comedians are the unsung hardest workers because 
They work it out on the stage in front of people. Uh, he says here, anybody that's really good over-prepares, and he, meaning Aziz Ansari, has got no problem. He kind of embraces it. You go to the comedy cellar any night, and Aziz is in the booth, and he's got his headphones on, and he's listening to his set from the night before. He's not listening to the new Kendrick. That's a really, really deep focus. And that would be something a lot of people would have a lot of problems with. Yeah. And also, it's an understanding, of course, Chris has been there. That's the deep focus. But you still get that insight on Chris that seeps through, especially when the author of the article or the interviewer asks him, Jada Yuan, um, asks him, you know, Aziz said that you told him this and told him that. And Chris was like, almost like, whoa, 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 don't give me all the credit. Cause like Louis CK was there too. And he also talked to Amy Schumer and somebody else. Like he was, as you said earlier, quick to share the credit, but he also doesn't want to be known as the architect of anything to do with Aziz and also really doesn't want that shine. No. And you know, there's two ways of looking at that. On the one hand, doesn't want sort of to take credit for anything to do with disease. On the other hand, if I'm being really uh, cynical about it, you don't want to be known as somebody's mentor because it means you might be done. Yep. Right? Like if you are giving the advice, I don't know anybody that we would refer to as a mentor of anybody else where you're not like, oh, they were great once uh, as opposed to being big in their own right because the people who are big are too busy worrying about being big. I I also think it was great the part where, um, like I said, you guys have to read this. We will link to it. But he was great when talking about his mentee, if you want, and actually building Aziz up and talking about where Aziz is great and his potential, but giving Aziz room to grow too, right? You can't go out in an interview like this and be like, hey, the kid has arrived. You have to be like, you know what? He's doing great things. When he hosted Saturday Night Live, I saw someone blow up right in front of me. He became more famous in that five minutes. He suddenly became a superstar. And then he pulls back and he says, but, you know, um, there's a part of Aziz that's like Leonardo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can. He can talk his way into anything, but he actually has talent. The guy is kind of a great director, kind of a great writer, kind of a really great stand-up. So to me, the kind of qualification there was he's a master of none, going back to the title of the show, but he's not quite there yet, everybody. Just wait for it or let's see if he can live up to it. That's interesting because I read that differently. I read it as, you know, and and I will not do a Chris Rock impression, but I read him as saying he's kind of a great director. He is kind of a great, you know, like that he's sort of parsing it in that way that means... Uh, basically it means Chris Rock is cool and knows how to talk. Uh, but I thought that he was sort of doing that thing where you actually underplay how great somebody is in a way that builds them up. I, I mean, it's about context, right? Like we, you read it one way, I read it another. I would love to hear Chris Rock's voice when he was saying this, which adds another dimension to this new sort of format of interviewing. But here's another thing that I picked up on too is there was an intersection here in this interview between Chris Rock, Aziz Ansari, and This American Life. So there is a really great This American Life, of course, is the podcast that is many, you know, is the podcast that spawned Serial and most recently S Town. And of course, it was co founded by Ira Glass. Um, and Ira 
um, has a quote that is one of your favorites. And yeah. you cite it all the time. It is a, kind of a long phrase. It's about two minutes long, but it's about uh, the gap between wanting to make great work or having great taste and actually being able to achieve that work, right? And knowing when you first start trying to make great work that it's not reaching up to your own standard, to your own taste. Yes. And so in this interview, uh, Jada Yuan asks Chris Rock, uh, Aziz's comedy has taste or he personally does? And Chris's response is, it's kind of across the board. People People that tell tacky jokes are usually tacky. They usually want to go to the shitty restaurants and they usually listen to bad music. There's no one better in the world to recommend a restaurant no matter where I'm at. I love that Aziz never gets annoyed. I'm like, Aziz, I'm in Afghanistan. Where can I get Thai food? And he always has an answer no matter where I'm at. And it's always amazing. This is about Chris Rock saying that Aziz has good taste. The other thing I like about that, not just good taste, and this is a, a theory that I'm working out as we're talking, but part of what makes you have great taste, part of what makes you a great director or a great comedian or a great writer or anything of the kind is having goddamn interests. Sometimes I think you can read this uh, article or one like it, and even though we fetishize oh, he listened to his set a hundred times. That's so exciting. He works so hard. He does so many stand-up bits. It can seem as though you are supposed to do only that, care about only that, live, eat, sleep, and breathe only that, as we say. But a lot of times, what actually makes you great is having other interests, being able to talk about other things, being interested in other people or other things. So the food thing, I ha I know because I've read some interviews, actually plays out a lot in the second season of Master of None, which is really exciting. And so it's not just uh, a setting in terms of food, it's Aziz Ansari's real interest in food. And it's really interesting how much we love saying Aziz Ansari. It's a fun name to say. The idea of taste is really interesting to me. Chris, Chris also says about Aziz, the thing about Aziz is he's got great taste and taste and choice is the most overlooked part of being an artist. Uh, how many times have we talked about, uh, you know, an actor who he or she is really great and we're like, what the fuck was he or she doing in this movie or on this show? Why did they choose that? Why That's was right. that their move? Yeah, I mean, the people, I, I feel like for a while now, people have been saying that about Robert De Niro. Um, <laughs> I think Bobby, as, as we call him in my house, uh, I think Bobby has some money issues to deal with. I think yeah. he got Madoff. You know, and interestingly enough, he is playing Madoff um, next weekend on HBO in The Wizard of Lies. Another person that uh, may be in that category, Johnny Depp, also chooses terrible roles. I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. If you had any hope for him in the beginning, right? That's right. But if you are somebody with a little bit of capital, a little bit like you have, say, post Parks and Rec, where everybody was like, we've never seen anybody like an Aziz Ansari before, where you choose to spend it and what you choose to make the show that you are making is a, is a, a really interesting question of taste and holding out for what will be great or interesting or quirky as opposed to the next biggest, best thing is, I guess, what separates the... Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, as you said, it's the holding out. I mean, like, 
Jennifer Aniston, to me, doesn't seem like she holds out. You know, she doesn't need the money. She's not De Niro, Bobby, or Johnny Depp. I mean, she's got money, and yet we're seeing in, and yet we see her in so many horrible, whatever those movies, horrible bosses and Christmas parties and whatever movies. Well, that's because Jennifer Aniston is desperately looking for a family. I'm not actually (laughs) joking. Um, If we're really, this is a bit of a tangent I didn't expect, but you know, when we talk about Aziz Ansari, his family is front and center in every single interview and conversation. Even when we talk about Chris Rock, his family is front and center. They actually, I believe in the Rolling Stone article that we read last week, they kind of gently rib him about the Adam Sandler movies. And he's like, man, those were fun. Those were a party. Jennifer Aniston will take anything that comes at her, not because she needs the money, but because she so desperately needs to be surrounded by people who love her, which is something that happens to actors who have a lot of love and adoration and are surrounded by people. And then it all goes away one day when you don't have to show up for season 12 of Friends. I still love that we found a connection between Ira Glass and Aziz Ansari. And Jennifer Aniston. Like and Jennifer somewhere. Aniston. <laughs> so we're at the final part of our podcast, yeah. our regular feature, Do We Need to Care About? Right. And uh, the question is, do we need to care about Kathleen Rose Perkins? And the answer is, unfortunately, probably not. So if you are asking who is Kathleen Rose Perkins, you uh, are right to ask. Uh, And this is the kind of, she's an actress who is the kind of actress where you're like, oh, I've seen her in stuff. She's been on stuff. She's been on Fresh Off the Boat. She plays Mamie. She has been on Colony, which I have never seen, but maybe I should. And she's probably most famous for uh, having been on episodes Uh, which is a show that I quite enjoy that nobody talks about. But she's not going to be on a new series called Good Girls with uh, Mae Whitman and Aziz Ansari's former castmate, Retta. She's been recast. The pilot was picked up this week to series, which means that at least until further notice, it's going to be on the schedule in the fall. But this is a thing that happens. Actors get recast even after the show gets picked up. Yes, we're picking up the show, but not with you, sorry, is a thing that happens more often than you think. Well, I mean, I think that the biggest example I can cite uh, for, in terms of current actors and current shows and big, big shows that everybody recognizes is uh, Amelia Clark, who plays Daenerys Targaryen, Khaleesi on Game of Thrones, was not the original Khaleesi in the pilot. Originally, they used someone called Tamsin. I don't remember the last name, but I feel like that's the point. Uh, Then Tamsin got replaced by Amelia, and, well, the rest is history. Well, and now Amelia, you just used Amelia like that was a first name only, because it almost is. She's so famous that she's a household name at this point, and she's the only one. Well, that character, I mean, she's the mother of dragons, right? If you ask anyone who watches Game of Thrones to cite a character from the Game of Thrones or recognizable character, it's going to be the mother of dragons, Khaleesi. I tell you who Khaleesi is or I ask you who Khaleesi is and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. And, you know, these happen sometimes in ways that turn out okay for the actor. Lisa Kudrow was actually cast as Roz 
and then was recast uh, in Fraser because it was so problematic. Uh, but sometimes it's the kind of person where you go, I don't know if they're going to bounce back. Um, Christella Alonzo is a comedian that we've talked about on Show Your Work before. Uh, she was in those great uh, That's Harassment shorts and had her own show a couple of years ago that was canceled. She was in Gospel of Kevin, which is also being picked up to series. Uh, if you need to know, this is the next place where you can see Jason Ritter. I know people need to know about this. But the show was picked up. She was not. Uh, so it happens over and over again. And it happens because network executives can say everything's working except for that one person. Or maybe we want you to rewrite the show and write out the wacky neighbor or boss or whatever character altogether. It can also happen because the actor that you really wanted was in first position, as it's called, committed to another show. But when that show gets canceled or doesn't go, then suddenly you have the actor you originally wanted. Hooray! And you can put them back in. And is that second position? Uh, the, the way it works is that, uh, the person who buys you first has first position. And if you think that your show is not going to come back, you might go on auditions, but they would know that you're in second position. Uh, so an example of the way that that did work is that, uh, Damon Wayans Jr. was, uh, in the pilot of New Girl, but when Happy Endings unexpectedly got another season, he couldn't stay on New Girl, and so they recast that part. Right. So he was in second position for Happy Endings. Like, what's the terminology there? Sorry. Uh, happy Endings had him in first position. Okay. And uh, New Girl had him in second position. Had Happy Endings not gone forward, right. they would have been able to keep Damon Wayans Jr. Got it. Uh, so sometimes it goes in that way, or sometimes… Uh, Lauren Graham was in first position for a show that ultimately did not go and in second position for Gilmore Girls. Right. Uh, and so only because the first show did not go was she able to do Gilmore Girls. So this happens often. It happens often. There are so many actors walking around who've been in first and second position. Yeah. And it's not always about first and second. It also means you can be recast because somebody doesn't like the look of your face yeah. or because, uh, you know you look like somebody's ex-girlfriend or because a million reasons. What, ha like, what do you do? Like, what do you do if you're Tamsin, I don't know your last name and I apologize, and you were in the pilot and now we're going into what, season seven? Are we going yeah, into season yeah. seven? And you're like, and it's basically the biggest show on television. And you're like, fuck me. It just sucks. And it sucks because it's probably not because you did a bad job, which is to say you have to jump through 98 hoops before you ever get cast in a pilot, and then pilots die for all kinds of reasons. Production of pilots and which ones go to series is almost like a pyramid scheme. Uh, many pilots are ordered to be written. Fewer are ordered to be shot. So maybe, say, 100 pilots are ordered by a network, and then they maybe shoot 25 pilots. That's probably ambitious these days. And then maybe they let five of those pilots go to series. They pick them up. But as you know, there's also tons of casualties in the first and second and third weeks of the kind of fall broadcast season. Maybe one show on a given network makes it to season two. It's a system that's kind of 
designed to have people fall off at all the edges. It's kind of Hunger Games. It's kind of Hunger Games. Yeah. There's always a very good chance that you are about to be killed. Jesus. So do we need to care about the Hunger Games of pilot casting? You can never get too comfortable with somebody you love who gets a pilot, with a pilot that you love that you can't wait to see. You know, uh, even with a show that you love that you think is a sure thing to come back for a second season that isn't happening, can we just pour one out for pitch? God, that was a great show. It had one season. It deserved way more, and it kind of got the shaft. Um, So even when a show is amazing and the cast works and everything is together, there's no guarantees. Television is often a bloodbath. And, you know, this is why there are therapists working in L.A. You go home, you lick your wounds, and you try again next pilot season. On that note, thank you for listening. Thank you for showing your work even when you're not sure if anybody's looking. Keep writing to us. Keep appealing to us as Clara did this week. I mean, she – I wish we could show this email and, like, you know, put a photo of it up on the site because her, you know, her appeal to you was – bold, Duanna, in bold. Duanna, I am talking to you. Please hear me. Clara, I I heard what you're saying. (laughs) Poor Clara. Even if I didn't altogether agree. Um, Keep sending us your comments. Lainey at LaineyGossip.com. Duanna at LaineyGossip.com. Tweet us. We love iTunes reviews. We want to hear what you think. Yell, scream. Check us out on Google Play. Uh, Keep working hard and we'll be back next week. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.